Welcome back to the Henry Zunkel Podcast. Today, we talked to the co-founder and executive director of Oregon Recovers, Mike Marshall. We talk about how Oregon has the third highest addiction rate in the country, how we are dead last in access to uh, addiction services, and what we can do as a community on February 12th for Advocacy Day at the State Capitol. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, today, um, excited to have uh, Mike Marshall uh, on the podcast. Mike, Thanks. welcome. Thank you. Um, uh, so you are the, actually, I'll let you introduce yourself real quick. Yeah, I'm the executive director and the co-founder of Oregon Recovers, which is a statewide advocacy effort to dramatically improve access to addiction treatment and recovery in Oregon. Sadly, Oregon has the third highest addiction rate in the country. And we rank almost dead last in terms of access to treatment. So we're working really hard to change that. You know, so uh, uh, after my brother died, and this was December 2018, uh, your website was one of the first ones I found in terms of just when oh, I started nice. searching around Oregon and whatnot. And everything was really well laid out. And I, I really enjoyed the website. If anybody wants to go there, OregonRecovers.org. Um, I was stunned to hear about the Oregon statistics. I had right. no idea. Um, yeah, most people, you know, we're considered this really progressive state. We have curbside composting, right? So we <laughs> must be liberal and progressive. But the fact is, is that we have starved so many of our actual systems over the last 25, 30 years, particularly when it comes to substance use disorder, when mm -hmm. it comes to addiction. And and the correlation between the fact that we perform so badly relative to dealing with addiction, it's not surprising then that our um, foster care system is one of the, I think the second or third worst in, yeah. the, in the country. And our youth incarceration rates are third highest. And as we all know, we number two in homelessness and even, you know, third worst high school graduation rates. What's the leading cause of poor graduation rates? Truancy. What's the leading cause of truancy? A parent or, or, or a young person's addiction. And our addiction rate here in Oregon of being the third highest in the country is for people 12 and older. It's not even just adults. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but policymakers um, have always tried to address those symptoms of this larger issue. And that's not to say that addiction is at the root, the, the, the primary responsibility of those other issues, but it's certainly a contributor. Yeah. So what led you to Organ Recovers, uh, founding yeah, so I'm a person in long-term recovery. I started drinking when I was nine and um, started using meth when I was in my mid to late 30s uh, and did that for 10 years. And then in 2008, um, so actually I'm coming up on an anniversary, the end of this month, January 29th, I'll have 12 years of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, I got sober on my own. I borrowed $15,000 from a friend who was a partner in a law firm in San Francisco. It was before the Affordable Care Act, but I'd, in my addiction, let my insurance lapse and mm -hmm. was unemployable and two months behind on my rent. And I reached out to a f one friend who connected me with a treatment provider and then, but I needed $15,000 cash and I come from a privileged life and mm -hmm. lived in San Francisco. And thankfully I have a friend who loves me and she lent me the $15,000, wow. no questions asked. So. That's not a healthcare system. Like, yeah. uh, and uh, I've been in continuous recovery because I was, when I got out of treatment, I was forty six year old, forty six years old, and and I I had a sense of I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. So I enrolled in an outpatient program that was for gay men. I uh, went to the Zen Center 
and they had a recovery and meditation meeting and I signed up for that and I figured out where all the gay meetings for meetings mm-hmm. for gay AA gay gay AA <laughs> meetings are and um and before I even got out of treatment I figured out which meetings I was going to go to so I yeah. figured it out for myself but you know, my doctor wasn't part of the equation. Mm-hmm. There was uh, the treatment provider. They were paid for the nights that I spent there. Yeah. The minute I walked out the door, they had no responsibility for me. Sure. Can you imagine coming out of heart surgery or an acute diabetic shock and you're hospitalized and you leave and nobody asks you when you're coming back. They don't tell mm-hmm. you to come back in and check. They don't offer you medication. And, you know, um, that's the crazy part is uh, we know that for the opioid epidemic, the medication is available, but they're... For folks like myself that that have um, uh, alcoholism, as yeah. you know, I could be treated with medication. I could have been treated with that twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and my doctor never suggested it. The treatment provider never suggested it. We don't have a continuum of care to deal with this issue, which is one of the leading causes of the social challenges I've mentioned already, and it is one of the the largest cost drivers of our healthcare system, right? Yeah. And we've had such a conversation about healthcare over the last 10, 15 years, and and really nowhere has addiction been a part of that policy conversation, and how do we fix that? And the fact that Oregon ranks so poorly still um, uh, is a, a huge challenge, but it's also this phenomenal opportunity, right? If we can address this issue, which from my perspective doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. doesn't matter whether you live in downtown Portland or Eastern Ontario in, in Eastern Oregon, right? Yeah. It like brings people together. Yep. It's, uh, it's blind to those circumstances. Yeah. Well, uh, so you said you grew up uh, privileged in San Francisco. What brought you to Oregon? Uh, so um, in my recovery, I uh, fell in love and my now husband uh, got a job here in Oregon. And um, when I first came... I sort of went back. I'd worked in politics for many years. And so I uh, was asked to run the marriage equality campaign to repeal the ballot measure, the the constitutional amendment. Um, We started doing that. And then lo and behold, the judge uh, uh, ruled in our favor. So we shut down that campaign. But that very next day, I went to work for Governor John Kitzhaber and his reelection campaign in 2014 and uh, uh, worked for him for six months, got him reelected, only to see him take early retirement shortly after that. (laughs) Um, but what's important about that is, is that shortly after that campaign, the Oregonian did a four-part series on how badly Oregon has handled addiction over the years and the fact that we rank last. And so I, I went and talked to Governor Kitzhaber and I said, mm-hmm. you know, you're a medical doctor. Yeah. You've been governor for three terms now, going on four. How is it that we rank last? And he hemmed and hawed and had some good policy arguments. And then he said, well, Mike... Here's the thing. In Oregon, we virtually always have a budget crisis. Like we're in a recession or we're coming out of a recession, but either way, we're usually cutting um, or we're just trying to maintain a certain level. And he said, we're not, we're making those budget decisions. I've had every constituency in my office, whether it's hikers or business leaders or union members or doctors or whatever. I've never had the recovery community come in here, pound on my desk and Mm. say, we have to do better. And I'm not a policy expert, but yeah. I'm an old community organizer. And that made sense to me, right? Yeah. Um, that once we get into recovery, because 12 steps have so clearly defined what the recovery world is, and anonymity is a key part of recovery, yep. we've not had a voice. We've not raised our voices and said, hey, this is a problem. We need to do better here. And I would say in the last 10 years across the country, 
Mm-hmm. People in recovery are starting to find their voice, um, partly because there's multiple forms of recovery, but partly because we recognize that um, once uh, we are in recovery, we need to be of service to those who aren't. And um, uh, so that's a long way of saying that's what brought me to Oregon yeah. Recovers was the recognition that Oregon could do better. And one of the ways we needed to do better was by first mobilizing the recovery community mm-hmm. And an Oregon Recovers definition or of the recovery community is not just people in recovery. As I like to say, it's people in recovery, the people who love us and the people who take care of us. So friends and family who are like yourself, who are deeply impacted by this issue. Um, and then the, the, the folks that work in the field that, yeah. um, you know, are the least paid and most overworked in the healthcare field, certified alcohol and drug counselors, peer mentors, nurses, doctors, whoever it is. We all needed to come together and build this coalition, and mm-hmm. that's what we've been doing for the last two and a half years. Well, thank you for doing that. That's uh, I hadn't I didn't know about the whole background of how you got to Oregon and yep. and uh, how Oregon Recovers was founded. So that's great, and I I thank you for leading this uh, coalition to hope you know. You know, it's a gift Oregon. to my recovery every yeah. day. What's the landscape like among legislators uh, in terms of people being open with addiction? And I asked that question because. Um, you're talking about how the addiction community really hasn't come, recovery yeah. community hasn't come in, knocked on doors and gotten involved. Well, if there's a politician that so, just so happens to share our same uh, issue, to me, it would obviously seem that they would do a better job advocating. Yeah. Are there people open about that or are people so afraid that they won't uh, get elected if they mention that they have some sort of condition that that just goes right. unsaid? Yeah, yeah, no, the stigma is huge. Uh Excellent question. And I have to say in the two and a half, three years that we, I've been doing this, the arc has, has really changed. So um, it is hard now that I'm so closely identified with Oregon Recovers. If I go in and meet with a legislator one-on-one, it's rare that they don't start the conversation with their own personal story. You know, my dad's, wow. whether they're Democrat or Republican, yeah. my dad's in the hospital right now dying of alcoholism. My father-in-law is a meth dealer on the streets of Grants sure. Pass. Uh, uh, you know, so um they are increasingly out about their recovery. And part of that has been that we have organized advocacy day, which I hope we're going to talk about. And um, we're coming up on our third one, but in uh, every time we send constituents in, we have them lead with their own personal story, which is uh, they don't need to be a policy expert to know, to be able, when they lead with their personal story of my daughter, myself, my boss, or my clients. Um, And we ask legislators, Democrat or Republican, to share with us their own relationship to recovery. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, they will start telling us their story. And um, I will tell you, we've created a database of each legislator's personal story so that as we talk with them, oh, that's, that's really we, can, smart. we can sort of reference that. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and I would say that there is bipartisan support, absolutely, to try and fix this system what we're going to come up against is, uh, and we can talk about sort of the arc of where we are in the policy world, but when it comes time to fund, put more funds into the system, we're going to have to talk about taxation. And then we're, mm-hmm. we're I'm concerned that we're going to start seeing, a, 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 you know, partisan lines form, but not necessarily. So yeah. another question I, I've asked before, but I think that helps guide um, us and the listeners is um, what we're talking about us being poor with regard to our health care, doing a poor job at it, a piss poor job at it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> what states do do a damn good job that you would say, you know what, Bobby, Louisiana, damn, they're good down there because of X, Y, and Z. Right. What would you 
pick if you had to just name a couple states? Yeah, so um, states like Massachusetts and Connecticut um, in recent years have done a great job of transforming their system. Nobody has done it well, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, treatment, which has been pretty much the only part of grappling with addiction, has lived outside the healthcare world for far too long, right? It's only since the Affordable Care Act that you've seen it move in. So, it all started out in church basements 75 to 100 years ago, these treatment providers where, and they grew up through donations and it, um, not unlike 12-step programs, it's really through the goodness of people's heart that we've created these programs, right? That's changing rapidly, but not as rapid as it needs to. Um, uh Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. You're, the, you're fine. You, I, I was asking about which states have the... Right, right. So um, what we discovered when we launched was the states that have come the farthest distance are where they created the political will first. So in both Massachusetts and Connecticut, you had a Democrat and a Republican governor. And what the local recovery communities there got them to do was to campaign on fixing the system. And so once they got in there... There was a lot more focus. There was a lot bigger ability to move the bureaucracy, which has been the biggest challenge is when you're trying to integrate a new, like bring substance use disorder into the healthcare system that's primarily funded through the public dollars, then you really need the political will to do it. And where you don't have the political will, it's hard. Um, So the states that are making the most um, progress are some of the New England states. Ironically, Los Angeles County, which is 10 million people, uh, also uh, has done a tremendous job of um, better integrating the healthcare system into the Medicaid system, uh, or sorry, the, the uh, addiction treatment system into the Medicaid system, which then has the impact of, of, of improving private access um, as well. Um, so I'm just going to read a couple stats because I, w- I want to get over uh, to a topic uh, we addressed. It was last Monday. Um, uh, Oregon Recovers held a little uh, meeting um, on Monday night about some Oregon legislation. Right. Um, and so I just want to read some stats off the Oregon Recovers website. So for the state of Oregon, uh, addiction costs the state $6 billion annually. That's yep. a huge number. That's insane. And when you talk about budget crisis, I mean, that's... Um, and the biggest one, uh, and this is, I, I found this, uh, I was very enlightened that night, was no single point of accountability or authority within the state government. Right. And when you mentioned, and I, I apologize if I get the the commission wrong, was it the Drug and Policy? or Drug, and Drug Policy Commission. Yeah, where they canceled, uh, they were formed, and they canceled 14 of the past 18 meetings <laughs> until Oregon Recovers was formed. That's right. And they were supposed to come out with a roadmap every two years. Yep. And not one was created. Uh, that's correct. And I was, when you said that, my mouth dropped because... That's just awful because, as you said, they're very powerful on paper. Right. But they're not even, I mean, they're formed, but they're not doing anything. Yeah. It goes back to this point about political will. What happened yeah. was about 12 years ago, John Kroger was the attorney general and he was a person in recovery and mm-hmm. he was very out about his recovery. And so when he got in, he recognized that, like, there were all these silos. Correction, Department of Corrections had their money. Oregon Health Authority had their money. Human Services had their money. Department of Education. And none of them were communicating with each other, and none of them were driving towards two very clear metrics. One, mm-hmm. how do we reduce the addiction rate? And two, how do we increase the recovery rate? Yeah. And uh, so um, he had the legislature create the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission, and um, they had 
uh, huge authority over, um, they could determine where money was being spent. Um, but neither Governor Kitzhaber nor Governor Brown initially, uh, number one, recognized the challenge of this issue. And number two, then put the, the talent and the resources into making the commission effective. So you're absolutely right. In the fall of 2017, when we launched Oregon Recovers, the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission had canceled 14 out of their 18 previous meetings, despite the perception that there's this huge opioid epidemic and the fact that it's costing us $5.9 billion annually. Um, I'm just going to say that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, really, when you, when you mentioned that that Monday night, I was, I was just pissed because here's our, you know, I was uh, born and raised here in Oregon. And when you hear that, that's just, that's pathetic. Right. It it's, really is. Um, you know, and it's why we set out from the very beginning not to argue for more money. Yeah. What we wanted was we wanted to see a higher level of understanding at the very top of state government for addiction and how to solve addiction. That's mm -hmm. another big problem is that we've put too much of the burden on the criminal justice system yeah. to grapple with this issue. And their voices have primarily been at the table. But understanding the problem, which they see every day. Yep. Um, unfairly, but in understanding the long-term solution, in other words, building a whole new component to our healthcare system. Well, there's nobody in the criminal justice world who has any background in healthcare uh, systems development, right? And But unfortunately, too many of those folks were in positions to make uh, decisions. And so sure. we advocated for quietly to get um, a new executive director for the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission to have a different health adv uh, different advisor in the governor's office be deal with this issue the criminal justice advisor allowed the commission to only to cancel a bunch of its meetings we got it moved over to the healthcare advisor's desk and immediately saw a difference that makes sense yeah totally it sh it, it shouldn't have been something but we i mean that was hand to hand combat to make yeah. that happen um, and we argued for a new behavioral health director at the Oregon Health Authority because the one that was in in place had significant background in mental health and no background in the course of talking with him, no understanding of how to deal with the substance use disorder challenges mm. the state faced. So we quietly did that. And then the other part of it was let's get a plan. Let's not have all these people spending money without any outcomes. Let's have a comprehensive strategic plan. And so that's where we got the legislature to require that the, um, uh, Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission to develop a strategic plan for a new blueprint of a continuum of care by December of 2019, so last month. And mm -hmm. um, we got the governor to to hire a new executive director. She simultaneously declared addiction a public health crisis, which goes back to what I was saying earlier, was you need the governor to um, uh, really get behind it. Yeah, It was the start of her reelection campaign, so it was the perfect timing to have her publicly say this. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, explain a little bit of what the effect of that is when right. somebody uh, declares that in terms legally? Yeah, it's a great question. There's virtually no legal uh, uh, issues involved. Um, what it was is it said to her, the, the folks who worked for her and, and the folks within the Oregon Health Authority that the governor was making this a much higher priority. So it's and like a statement of intent? It's a statement, sort of. yeah. And, and it was important to get her in front of a re-election campaign to be talking about this so that we could subsequently hold her feet to the fire, which turns out has been a challenge. Uh, and um, uh, But it had no legal uh, point uh, mm -hmm. consequences. 
it was part about building momentum towards getting a new executive director, having legislation passing, get us a plan by this date. And we always timed it so that the plan would be done in time for this short session, which starts in February. Not that we would implement and do the whole thing all at once, but that the the governor would then lead the way uh, with the legislature on beginning to implement, fund and implement Mm -hmm. the plan. And so uh, we've been very methodical about it. And honestly, we didn't, this was in 2018 and uh, the beginning of 2018. And we agreed to a timeline in which the plan wouldn't be done for 18 months, which, you know, we're losing seven people a day to wait 18 months for a strategic plan but it was the compromise that we had to agree to. They're about a month late, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. They'll they'll meet their deadline in February um, to have that plan. Um, but sadly, the governor announced in September that she was going to walk away from that, um, and and not walk away from it. Um, uh, that she was going to put it on a shelf for a year. She appointed another task force to look at um, homelessness, acute mental health, and substance use disorder, all of which are hugely important and mm-hmm. have a confluence, but to delay action on building a new continuum of care to address uh, addiction while so that you can have recommendations relative to a small subset of folks who are acutely homeless and with mental health issues is kicking the can down the road. What are they doing in the meantime? Because, you know, if we're at war right now, um, you may not make big moves all the time, but you're still doing a little stuff. You're not just stagnant. And we are currently at war. Yeah. Um, so are there short term, small little steps on the path to the ultimate um, road we want to get toward? Or is that just stagnant also? It's it's pretty stagnant. Like uh, that's what's been so disappointing here is that the governor declared a public health crisis, said, give me a plan within 18 months. Should have been within 12 months, but OK, mm-hmm. 18 months. And then before the plan's even done, announces that she's going to wait another 18 months before she does anything on the plan. And, and there she appointed separately an opioid task force. Um, and they have, uh, over time, um, made some, uh, small but important improvements to grappling with the opioid epidemic. But it's, the issue here is not the substances. The issue here is the concept of addiction and the fact Mm -hmm. that we don't have a continuum of care. We do virtually no prevention work. Yeah. Uh, we uh, put all of our engagement and intervention resources into the criminal justice system when they need to be moved into the primary care system. Our doctors and nurses need to be intervening in our addiction, not sheriffs and police officers. We need rapid access to treatment. This notion that I say to you, okay, I'm ready. Get me a bed or get me an three weeks from program. now, Mike. I have one in three weeks. For yeah. You. Well, maybe call me back. <laughs> call me back every if day. You're still alive. Yeah. <laughs> and don't drink and use, by the yeah. way. And then, oh, you've been drinking and using, we have that bed, but now you have to go to detox. And then you go to detox and the bed's gone when you get out. And, um, and then no recovery support, right? Um, you, kn- you know this as well as I do, like 28 days in a treatment facility is a good start, but it's the rest of your life that you have to focus on. And so the notion that um, there's virtually no recovery centers around the state. It's interesting. Earlier, you mentioned Massachusetts and Connecticut. All of a sudden, I think of Patrick Kennedy Jr. Yeah. And I did treatment in Utah multiple times at a place called Recovery Ways in Murray, Utah. It's just outside of Salt Lake. And Patrick Kennedy was on the board there. Oh, is that right? So I'm thinking to my, and it's great, 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 great um, care. Yeah. So I'm thinking, huh, that's interesting. You just mentioned that Massachusetts was great. This gentleman hails from Massachusetts. Well, had something to do with like he's t- absolutely. The right so Harvard University has uh, created a recovery institute, and they're actually starting to elevate 
um, recovery into uh, and defining it as recovery science. Like it's it's one thing to to look at addiction science, but it's another thing to look at recovery science as yeah. well. And so, uh, but they're just beginning. And you know, Obama was the first one to report appoint a recovery or sorry a a drug czar that was in recovery and wasn't a criminal justice expert. You know, up until then it was always former generals or former police yeah. chiefs, which again is totally crazy. It's a healthcare problem. Uh, but, um, uh, and that guy was from Massachusetts and has gone back there and is on faculty at Harvard university. So, um, it's not surprising. It's also, the issue is, you know, in the very beginning of the opioid epidemic, it was pretty prevalent in the new England States. And I think that's also why, um, there's been more motion and action there. Yeah. Um, so I want to get back to, uh, I just lost my train of thought as well. (laughs) Um, It'll come back. Yeah, we were talking about... Uh, it was momentarily derailed. Uh, it's okay. Uh, we were talking about... Uh, oh, so I was going to go back about the the meetings, everything. And then, you know, Bobby mentioned, you know, if it's uh, if things are moving and you mentioned it's stagnant. So since Organ Recovers was founded, can you talk about the the little moves that you have made that you see progress uh, in, within the state? And also um, what basically what the derailment of this 18 month plan does going down the road. So it's not a derailment and you know, we're not necessarily going to accept waiting another 18 months. Uh, but we're trying to figure out what's the best approach on Mm -hmm. that. Um, the governor has the ability to call an emergency session in the legislature. You know, the legislature is going to be meeting for 35 days in February in the first week of March. They have lots of issues. They don't want to deal with this issue. That's the governor's excuses. They just can't get to this issue. Uh, someone actually said, Mike, you need to understand the short session is only for emergencies. Mm. And I kind of went yeah. crazy because I said, look, seven people are going to die today from drugs and alcohol. Seven people are going to die tomorrow. Seven people are going to die the day after that until we have over 2,100 people are going to die this year, which is 700% higher than the worst year of the AIDS epidemic in Oregon in wow. 1994. And yet you're telling me it's not an emergency? I call bullshit on your non-emergency. Yeah. Imagine if seven people were gunned down every day yeah, in right. Portland. Well, I know two people, people here died hate... of vaping, and now they're right. like, yeah, they're exactly. holding hearings and exactly. they're you know banning Vape vaping. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. it's it's and like I'm not for vaping, but yeah. um, the notion um, and part of it is there's fear because we ultimately have to look at raising the price of alcohol. Uh, alcohol is the biggest contributor to this epidemic, this emergency. Uh, we haven't raised the beer tax since 1977. It's the lowest in the country. It's not coincidental that we have the lowest beer tax and we have the least access to treatment. Um, it doesn't take rocket science, but the beer distributors lobbyist has been all powerful in Salem for many, many years. Um, and so legislators and the governor are concerned that they can't beat him which is just crazy uh, because, first of all, in the past, Oregon Recovers hasn't existed, And uh, number one. But number two, the notion that um, you're looking at what happened, because they haven't tried in 10 years. Mm-hmm. The world's a very different place today. The yeah. legislator's very different. The people's experience with addiction is very different. Um, and we have really good, we're, you know, it's costing the taxpayers so much money not to fix this problem. So the notion that 16 beer distributors and their lobbyists are, can stop the governor and to have the governor staff say that just th- gives away the governor's power. And I just want to throttle them because she's the chief executive of the great state of Oregon. And she uh, uh, has the ability to mm-hmm. pull people together to do what's right. And we can't let fear 
of some perceived power of a handful of rich out of state, you know, big alcohol folks Mm -hmm. keep us from doing it. But, um, that's where we're at. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned lowest in the nation in terms of beer tax. Um, let's say, uh, you raise that by actually. So what's the number one, what state has the number one beer tax? You know? uh, I don't know. Okay. And I don't want to start to compare that because if, yeah. if when you've got the highest addiction rate and the least yeah. access to treatment, you can't kind of just go off what other states are doing. We just have to do what we need to do yeah. to get out of that. And so, um, you know, the Oregon Health Authority a year ago gave the governor a proposal to let's raise the price of beer, wine, and cider mm-hmm. by 10%, not the yeah. tax, because the tax okay. is just a fraction of a penny on a gallon, but the price. And the whole goal there would be, number one, uh, just like with tobacco, you raise yeah. the price, you reduce it's consumption, yep. particularly amongst underage drinkers and binge drinking. One of the big causes here is not necessarily addiction, but binge drinking. 50% of the alcohol sold in Oregon today will be utilized in binge drinking. So uh, if you raise the the price of the alcohol, um, you're going to, in fact, reduce consumption and also generate significant resources to build a new continuum of care Mm -hmm. that we now have a blueprint for. Yeah. And uh, uh, how is binge drinking defined? Uh, I think it's more than... For a man, and I think it's like three or more drinks for a woman in one evening, like in one four-hour period. And you said 50% of the alcohol sold today is... According to the Oregon Health Authority, like more than half. And I think like three quarters or more of the hospitalizations relative to alcohol Mm -hmm. um, are as a consequence of someone binge drinking. Yeah. I can see putting that tax in place to prevent people or make them less likely to binge drink which if they are, uh, do that less as a youngster, they'll be less likely to end up like me. Exactly. That's where you're going with that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's not to deter me, the seasoned, grizzled alcoholic, mm. pickled liver guy, well, from going and getting stuff. Um, you know, the Oregon Health Authority measures consumption as opposed to addiction, which they're prevention folks. So um, it's a regressive tax. The, pe- it's, the, the guy who gets off work, goes across the street to his craft brew- brewery and orders mm-hmm. that $6 IPA, and now all of a sudden he has to pay six sixty. if you're raising it 10%. Yeah. He's still going to buy that beer, right? It's the, the kids going to 7-Eleven who are built, getting the case of beer for... Uh, you know, five bucks and now it's five or 10 bucks and it's 11 or they don't have another dollar. It's just the elasticity or the, the movement between that um, is going to, it is going to impact probably the folks that are on the street drinking. It's going to reduce their ability to buy that alcohol, which is not a bad thing. Right. Um, uh, But it's also to your point, if we can reduce the amount of alcohol that someone drinks with, I mean, the, the correlation between if you start drinking before you're 16 in any meaningful way, the link then to addiction mm-hmm. later in your life is so much more significant than if you wait until you're 17 or older to start drinking. Um, and so the more we can limit access to alcohol for young people, the better uh, we taxpayers will be served in the years yeah. to come. And so say if we did raise the price on alcohol 10%. I say 20%. Let's raise it 20%. Okay, let's go 20%. Um, and we funnel that money into you know uh, medical and prevention and treatment services. How much money, um, does the state of Oregon know how much money that would bring in annually or every, you know? Yeah, so uh, a 10% increase, I think, I don't know my paperwork in front of me, it generates another $380 million a year. 
Wow. Which would be huge, right? So for there are four components. And that's just 10%. That's just 10%. This is right? not spirits. This is only beer. This is just beer, wine, and this cider. It's a good question. We, because Oregon controls, the, like owns the sale of alcohol, mm-hmm. we're already funded. Uh, we're already, uh, our alcohol prices are already one of the highest in the country. And we don't want that taken away. That's a huge pillar to reducing consumption is having the state uh, control the sale of hard spirits. And so Oregon Health Authority is worried that if we raise the price that much higher, big box stores are going to be that much more incentivized to come in and try and change the policy to allow them to sell alcohol at. uh, And so we don't want to poke that bear just yet until, especially without a continuum of care. And given that there's enough revenue in beer, wine, and cider, and that beer is the lowest on the um, taxation level, we want to start there. Uh, Whenever I think about all of this, too, and we're talking about um, maybe putting it in a palatable form for, for people to understand the seriousness of it, if you just, to me, if you talk to the average person, Portlander, one of the number one things that comes up is the homeless problem and the streets aren't clean. Right. And really... That's part of the pro- that that's it's all one thing. So it's almost like if you sell it, yes, it's about addiction and health, but it's about a, a healthier state and a healthier city, and that means a cleaner place, lots of other things. So I don't know how much people are tying it all together, but that's a huge thing. All right. those people out there are addict. Well, not all of them, but you know what I'm saying. A vast majority I, of those people have. If I were living problems. on the street, I'd be. I'd be drunk every day. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, I don't think one is necessarily the cause of the other, but, and we shouldn't, uh, there are plenty of people in white collar jobs, you know, uh, just a few feet from here who are, have a bottle of vodka in their desk drawer and nobody ever knows it. Right. So Mm -hmm. addiction knows no boundaries when it comes to socioeconomic issues. And for some of us, we fall through the social safety net and we end up on the street and that's, yeah. That's horrendous. But if, I would argue, like, when people are walking down the street and they see a bunch of homeless people, imagine we basically what you're walking to is like walking down a hallway of a hospital exactly. that's not serving the people mm-hmm. that it's That's exactly right. And it's mental illness. So I, I have bipolar disorder. I right. found out when I went to treatment. And I've been in lots of mental hospitals. And when I drive down the street, that's exactly what I think, Mike. I'm like, right. oh, it's just these guys that I was hanging out with in Cedar Hills right. or whatever, you know. Right. So it's really sad to see it every day. And I know people say that, but as someone who's literally been inside these places, uh, it's just like someone opened up the door and let them all out on the street. Right. And no, no one cares. And it's, I get really annoyed at them too. They're throwing crap all over the place and all that, but they're not in their right mind. That's the whole point. Yeah. And, you and need the to help system them out. failed them and put them there to begin with. And, um, you know, we can point fingers or we can fix the problem. Yeah. So let's fix the problem. Exactly. And, yeah. and the fact is if we can create a continuum of care around addiction, around substance use disorder, then an awful, a lot fewer people are going to be, we're going to engage them sooner. So there, it's, it, there won't be these really adverse consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to offer more people a pathway to recovery, um, even when they, once they're living on the street, but, um, uh, it requires the political will to do it. Um, uh, it also required, it requires a plan to do it. And, Mm -hmm. and that's why we're soon to have that plan. And so the next step then is to figure out how to pay for it. And, um, uh, uh, like I said earlier, that's going to be called number one, it's getting folks in Salem to actually say, okay, if we can't do it in the short session, let's call an emergency session and let's deal with this. So if, uh, let's bring it back to, you know, we, we raise the price just on beer, wine, and cider. Yep. 10%. 
and you said that was about 300 350 million dollars a year yeah. that would bring in if you were the you know head person in the state of you know at, down at salem at the capitol uh who's controlling these funds um the recoveries are yes recoveries are yeah wouldn't that be nice if we had yeah one? Be, that'd be wonderful does any state have one Oh, they have drug czars, but oh, yeah. they don't have recovery yeah. czars. Um, so you're the recovery czar. What would be, say, like the three pillars? And uh, there's four. Four, okay. There's four pillars. You're going into that. Yeah. So on prevention, we know from the Center for Disease Control. Well, actually, we don't. The, the Center for Disease Control has recommendations on uh, how much a state, depend, depending on population, should spend on tobacco prevention. Mm-hmm. But big alcohol has prevented them uh, from ever having resources from Congress to look at uh, alcohol or drug prevention. Interesting. They, all the money goes into um, uh, treatment yeah. uh, so that, but the alcohol companies don't want to prevent people from drinking to begin with, right? They want to sure. wait till they drink too much. Uh, so we, if you take that, that formula for tobacco prevention, um, it says that Oregon should spend $39 million. We currently spend $11 million on prevention work. Wow. Now, I would argue, given that we have the fourth highest addiction rate, we probably should spend more than $39 million, mm-hmm. like at least until we get that sure. down to the national average. But even then, so we need just, what, $28 million there. Um, and what uh, does prevention look like? I mean, in a, uh, in a macro scale of yeah. the state of Oregon, what does that look like to, to really implement and create change. Yeah. So um, at the local level and, and most of our resources currently, because we have so little are going to counties and mm-hmm. it's erratic from county to county, but it's, it's uh, teaching kids about the dangers of addiction. Um, uh, it's trying to look at at risk populations, whether it's pregnant women or, uh, you know, single uh, kids and single family. I like, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not a prevention expert, sure. but uh, you know, uh, we used to have a preventionist in every school district, and we mm-hmm. that went away a long time ago. What's really lacking in Oregon right now, then, is all that local prevention work needs to be supported by a statewide messaging system, a public advertising campaign. Yeah. You drive across into Idaho right now, you'll see billboards that warn about not drunk driving, but the dangers of alcohol. Yeah. We don't have any of that, right? Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, there's a huge correlation between breast cancer and alcohol. Hmm. The vast majority of women don't know that. Um, and so that level of statewide education of you drink, these are the consequences I would say we also then need to be promoting recovery, Yeah. right? Like we don't not only need to have a system where people can get recovery, we have to promote the idea of they want recovery. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Bobby, like when you come out of treatment, you turn on the TV and there's all kinds of ads for alcohol. And, um, you know, it's sort of like if you want to be happy, you should be drinking. If you want to be popular, you should be drinking. If you want to get laid, you should be drinking. It's Christmas time. You should be drinking. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's the way my family is. And that's the way the but we don't have any anything promoting recovery. Yeah. And um, what does that look like? Um, uh, What does my life look now that I'm 12 years in recovery? And uh, so we need people to want it, to pursue it, um, just as we build the system. Humanizing recovery, put a face to it. Right. Th- I think that's the, as you said, you know, because everything was so very AA, not to knock them because they've done wonderful things right. over the years, but the anonymity has really, I, you know, it sounds like these last uh, 20 years during this huge epidemic of, of alcohol and opioids, um, 
you know, also meth too, yeah. uh, that people don't ever see a way out. Right. You know, there's no face to it. Well, and there's the stigma of it too. Like, yeah. um, I know that in many years in the run up to actually finally having to get treatment, I wanted to, but I was afraid to ask for it. Yeah. And I didn't, didn't want to say that I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so we need to, so we need a prevention program that at least, at least meets the recommended levels that the center for disease control yeah. recommends. Then we need to begin to train doctors and lawyers in emergency rooms to deal with this issue. Um, and to, you know, for a pediatrician, like to start talking with parents about, okay, so this, my, my, um, patient, my, uh, 10 year old patient here, both his grandparents died of alcoholism. Yeah. So let's have a conversation about what that looks like as they move into their teen years. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, and then when the 30 year old Nike executive comes in and says, you know, they ask the question, so how many drinks are you drinking? And they're like, well, it's a funny thing, doctor. In the last year, I've gone from a glass of wine when I get home to a bottle of wine when I get home. Most doctors don't know what to say. Like, they might ask that question, yeah. and if you tell the truth, they're going to be perplexed. They have one hour of addiction medicine training, and and most nurses don't have any, and, and social workers have none. Like, and they don't necessarily understand recovery. So it's not just about building a system they can direct people into. It's helping them understand which system to direct them into Mm -hmm. and not just say, well, here's a pamphlet with 12 step meetings because that's hardly for everybody, nor is it a medical response. I've asked this before. And to me, I'm always thinking, man, we have a big undertaking. Where's our home base? And what I mean by that is when I was in Utah, uh, they attached to the university and this, you talked about Harvard having a recovery program earlier. They have the University yeah. Neuropsychiatric Institute in Utah. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. And it, they do a wonderful job. And they're very connected to all the different treatment centers. And at this place, they have a, all the different times. But on Sunday morning, they have a big meeting for everybody. And hundreds of people show up. That doesn't exist in Portland unless I, you know, there's a so, secret door somewhere. So, but why doesn't OHSU or somebody like that um, a university, University of Oregon, whatever. How come there is no program being started? Well, so I, I, I think there is good stuff going on. Um, you know, we, we talked about what are the four pillars. First one was prevention. The next one was in, engagement. Mm-hmm. The next one is treatment on demand, yeah. which is really just about building more treatments and having a funding system where it's not a fee for service because we need to pay treatment centers to keep a bed open so that it's available when it's available as opposed to reimbursing it. Um, uh, but then there's recovery support, which is the huge thing. And and here in Portland, we have the Alano Club of Portland, sure. which in most cities, the Alano Club is just for 12-step programs and in some cases just for alcohol 12-step programs. But th- the Alano Club here is doing amazing work in terms of multiple f- pathways of recovery, whether it's Wellbriety, which is Native American-based, or Refuge Recovery, which is Zen-based, or Women in Recovery, which is f- for women. There's all kinds of other things. And then they do... Uh, um, uh, advising on how to clean up your credit. They do advising on how to clean up your legal record, both of which are, can be huge triggers to relapse, right? You know, yeah. and r- hugely important and important to be able to go someplace where the person sitting next to you has, has as bad a credit as you and you can laugh about it as opposed to feel embarrassed about it. Um, uh, and then there's Fourth Dimension Recovery Center on MLK. There's Miracles on MLK that caters to African-Americans. But otherwise, those are the only three recovery centers in Portland that have paid staff. There are other places where you can go to meetings, uh, the URS Club or Bridges to Change. Sorry, they also have one for folks that are uh, formerly incarcerated. 
um, that's uh, professionally staffed. We need them all over the state, right? And that's where you need to go. And and it's not just when you're getting into recovery, whether you go to treatment or not, there are plenty of folks who just go to an AA meeting or go to a refuge recovery meeting, and then they're on a pathway to recovery. But what I need for support relative to my recovery at 12 years is very different than at 12 months, right? Um, because, uh, but I still need some level of support and mostly it's community. I need to be around other people that are in recovery. I need to do what I get to do in my job, which is to talk about the fact that on a, I diagnose on a daily basis that I'm an alcoholic and an addict. That's the whole concept mm-hmm. there of a 12-step program is you say it out loud and once you say it, you have to address it, right? OHSU here in they do amazing stuff. The folks up there, the research they're doing, they're doing pilot projects down in Roseburg and other places. Um, but they're the shiny place on the hill. Sure. Um, I, that's all absolutely true. I think I was more just talking about like structural. And maybe I have a misinterpretation uh, of what's good and it's mine's very myopic because it works for me in right. Utah. But I just think of, huh. I'm sick. I'm in the city. I'm withdrawing from heroin. I know you can go to Hooper and all these places, but where the hell is like a nice big one? That's, right. We have plenty of uh, nice universities and money. How come there isn't one? It's just a little thing of mine well, that, that I'm always wondering. Yeah. About. yeah. Well, I think it goes, it's, it's the absence of this system of care and certainly an absence of recovery support. I don't know that we need any one place because all of us are different. Like when I first got sober, I only wanted to go to gay AA meetings. I didn't want to go to a meeting where sure. you were going to go because I wanted to talk about it. 18 months into my sobriety, I had hep C and the treatment for hep C used to be 11 months of interferon treatment. So I went to a hep C AA meeting and everybody there either had been through it or were going through it or were going to go through it. And so there's different stages and what we need to do is make sure that if you're african-american and you're looking for recovery you have some place where you're going to be comfortable in your recovery if you're in roseburg that there's plenty of resources in roseburg Mm -hmm. if you live out in the middle of nowhere that you can log on and be part of a group online yeah and and deal with your recovery so there's i don't think there's any one thing we need we need a system of care that recognizes that recovery requires ongoing support. The Surgeon General says, if you can keep somebody in recovery for 60 months, so five years, then their chance of relapse goes down 15% to 15%. There's virtually no other chronic medical conditions where if you treat it for five years, like diabetes or heart disease, that then all of a sudden it's, it's, uh, the chance of relapse goes that uh, down. Your buddy, Dr. Andy Mendenhall has been on this podcast before. He's the first to tell you it is the best return on investment is, is investing yeah. people's recovery. Yeah. Um, so I want to, uh, switch to coming up here <clears throat> on, I'm like, hopefully I don't get this wrong. February 12th. Yep. Uh, I like to talk about advocacy day because that's, that's a big one, uh, coming up here in the state of Oregon. Down at Salem, and I just want to, you know, as you mentioned, uh, about five people every day in the state of Oregon die from alcohol. Yep. Uh, one to two die from drugs. Um, and then also read a report recently just nationwide that alcohol deaths have doubled since 1999. I, th- uh, <clears throat> I actually think that uh, uh, here in Oregon, yeah. they've gone up, uh, yeah, easily. Um, the, I know they've gone up 40%. Meth is shooting through the yep. roof right now. The quality of the meth that people are using today versus the homegrown stuff that mm-hmm. we had 10 years ago that we get when we couldn't get Sudafed on yeah. the counter anymore. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, the fatality rate's a big deal. Yeah. 
but so are the hospitalizations. So yeah. are the families that are being broken up. So are the lost uh, wages and the way they are impacting families. So there's 400,000 people in Oregon tonight whose families are grappling with their untreated addiction. And the only way we're going to change that is if we profoundly change the way we deal with public policy. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's our third annual lobby day and it's about getting people, the recovery community, mm-hmm. siblings, people in recovery, doctors, yeah. addiction doctors, coming to Salem, knocking on doors. Uh, we were successful last year in having um, people from 29 of the state's 30 Senate districts. Wow. Uh uh, which means that virtually every House member, because there's two House members per Senate district, uh, had a constituent walk through their door and say, I drove here from Klamath Falls. I drove here from Burns. Here's my story. Yeah, We need you to do these three things. And we have three or four bills that we are um, supporting in the short session. Mm-hmm. We have one bill we're opposing, which is the home delivery of alcohol. Uh, uh, Representative Margaret Doherty, She's not running for re-election. She thinks this is a good idea to allow people to dial up and have uh, alcohol delivered to their door, which if you're 16 years old, what's a better way to get a beer than to say, oh yeah, leave it on the front doorstep. And they don't, they're not required under this legislation to demonstrate that the person who ordered it is 21. Are you serious? I'm serious. It's a stupid, stupid bill. I mean, it's just, and, and we had a couple of addiction doctors go talk to her and she's like, yeah, sorry, I'm going to introduce it anyway. Uh, you know, uh, Margaret Doherty. I mean, I'm Irish Catholic, so I know exactly where she's coming from. Mm-hmm. These are people, right? You know, like I'm not shocked, but I was shocked at her laissez-faire attitude when a number of Oregon Recovers activists went to her and said, please don't do this. Yeah. Uh, so, she, uh, I think she's taken a lot of money from the alcohol industry sure. over the years. And so this is her parting gift. Is there a spot on the Oregon Recovers website where, like a legislative spot, people can go and, and look at the current bills you're oh, supporting or anything like it's, that? It, soon. We're a little behind the, the eight ball and all this, but uh, if you can go on and register for Lobby Day, mm-hmm. and if you think you're a maybe for Lobby Day, register anyway. Um, uh, you go to OregonRecovers.org, and uh, there's a button right at the top that says register for Lobby Day. And as we get closer... The bills are all being written. Uh, like today is a deadline in terms of one of the bills that we're supporting that Representative Sanchez is doing. Uh, they'll go from being a legislative concept to a legislative bill next week. So once we have that information, it will be on the website, but it will also be emailed to people in advance of coming down to Salem. And we'll reimburse folks if they need to for their their mileage. We're going to uh, use an app this year that arranges people can arrange carpooling. Um, uh, well, there are a couple buses or vans that go leave the city from fourth dimension recovery center from the Alano club. We'll do that again this year. Hopefully same coming up from Medford and, yeah. and, uh, Eugene and all those places. So it's an amazing day. It's uh, the very first year we did it at the end. I, I did a debrief with a bunch of folks that the fourth dimension recovery center had brought down and a good third of them had recently gotten out of jail or prison. Most of them are formerly incarcerated. And I said, so you guys, what was the best part of the day? And the guys, of course, were like, oh, I had my picture taken with the governor. And, you know, like, hmm. Uh, and then this this lovely woman in the back of the room raised her hand and she said, you know, Mike, in the last year, I've lost three of my best friends to this disease. And today when I was talking to my legislator, I feel like their voices were being heard. I get choked yeah. up every time I tell that story because that's about building power in a community yeah. that has been so um, abused and so without power, and it's really at the core of what we're doing is 
we're not just doing systems change, we're doing cultural change. And in the process, we're keeping me sober and we're keeping everybody else sober who's yeah. participating in the work that we're doing because we yeah. get to be outside of ourselves and be of service to our state. And it's a full day down at the Capitol. It's a full day, yeah. yeah. And there's a rally. If you can only come down for the rally, uh, you know, our goal is to have like five or 600 people making a lot of noise on the steps. Um, so the legislators, you know, legislators are politicians. They understand people. They understand mm -hmm. numbers. Um, and... Uh, there were a couple legislators who'd never had a constituent come to their office because they their constituents are so far away from Salem, hmm. and we brought them the fir their first constituents. That's so, great. Uh, there'll be you know some speeches. You'll have to listen to me a little bit, uh, um, and then you get to to walk around the Capitol and talk to your legislators and get to meet other people in recovery. Yeah. It's a really really fun day. Yeah. So um, I encourage people to uh, sign up. Come. Yep. February twelfth. February twelfth. Yes. Go to OregonRecovers.org right there on the top. I'm looking at it right now. So very easy and come on out. Cause I know I'll be going, uh, this will be my Excellent. first time. I'll That's be great. there too, Mike. Good. Yeah. I'm Maybe excited. you guys should do a podcast from there. That's that would idea. be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, you down? <laughs> well, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. We we'll get you some legislators on there. We'll have some people from, you know, Grants Pass, Klamath cool. Falls, Burns. Uh, I just think there's so many stories to be told. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that would be really great. Yeah. Yeah. Be totally doing that. And you know, <clears throat> uh, obviously the people that can't participate then can, can listen in and, and yeah. learn more about it. Sure. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else uh, you want to mention uh, before we head out. Uh, if you can't, yeah. if you can't come to, or even if you can't come to lobby day, call the governor's office, you know, Google mm. it. Um, uh, they, they oddly don't, aren't set up to take emails. Uh, which is like for, I have for an elected official is kind of most well, legislators can, but there's no email to send to the governor, but there's a phone number on the website. So call the phone and say, you know, governor, we need you to take a lead on this, yeah. not just follow, not kick the can down the road, not wait till a budget cycle. Yeah. Seven people are dying today. The process can't get in the way of, of trying to deal it's with that. It's an emergency now. It's an emergency, right? And a long and, time ago it was an emergency. Right. If yeah. you don't remember any statistics, just call and say, Hey, this is an emergency. We we really want the governor to be a leader on that emergency. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you, Mike, for coming on. Thank you. Thanks thank you for, for all the work you, you and your team are doing. Uh, it's wonderful to hear. So, right um, we'll see you here in a couple of weeks. Excellent. Looking forward. Awesome. To it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, everyone. We are really excited here at Henry's Uncle. We have formed a partnership with the Cash App. The Cash App is an app that empowers people to control their own finances. Same here at Henry's Uncle, where we want to empower people to share their own experiences around their addiction. Uh, when you download the Cash App, enter the referral code Henry's Uncle. You get $5, Henry's Uncle gets $5. It's a win-win for everyone. You can download the Cash App on your Apple or Android device. Thank you for listening to the Henry's Uncle podcast. Please take a second to like, subscribe, or rate us. But more importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who may be interested in the topics discussed so they know they are not alone. As always, at Henry's Uncle, you are loved, never judged.